0: Greetings, troubled listeners, welcome back to the Troubled Men Podcast. I am Renee Coman, sitting in my safe house, on the line with my co-host, the original Troubled Man for Troubled Times, and future mayor of New Orleans, Mister Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny.
1: Hey, man. How are you? I'm good, Manny. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing all right, man. You know, considering everything, uh, I feel okay. Uh, uh, everything you know, uh, things are getting back to normal.
0: Yes, know? yes. You, you know, know, you know. I had a, I had, a, I was hanging out with a former guest, Glenn Styler, the other day, and uh, we were we were talking. He, he was saying that we were saying, you know, things have really been improving lately. We're almost back to being miserable again.
1: Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a very good way to put put it. Because I, in fact, I realized a lot of that today when I had to, uh, from my job, I had to go. Uh, pick up my daughter from her job and I realized man you know s- just three months ago this would have taken me 10 minutes yeah now it's taken me like almost an hour to do this right and, uh, and then I said to, you know, I thought to myself well I guess it's getting back to normal you know and uh, you know and it is getting back to normal because they announced today uh, a jazz fest will be back in October right. and they've already announced all the, the all the bands and stuff like that and, you know, they, I saw it on the news. They were, they were making such a big hoopla about it. But, you know, I live in Jazz Fest neighborhood. And to me, it's like, okay, great. They said, oh, we're, we're expecting, you know, 500,000 people in the two weeks. Well, it's like, you know, I, I live like six blocks away. Right. So they're all, all
0: going to park on your lawn.
1: Yeah, they're all going to park on my lawn or walk through my, you know, through my street and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're all going to want to talk. <laughs> you know they, they all don't want to talk to you you know it's it's the weirdest thing you know? it's crazy going nuts it's like i don't want to talk to you. i don't care where you're from i don't care what you're doing you know? <laughs> just, just keep moving you know like you know follow the yellow line man just keep moving
0: yeah yeah the, the chit chat can be a bit much with uh- but
1: it will be interesting because it will be in october which is um you know you always have a crazy maybe storm come through a uh, maybe a tropical uh, storm or a cat one Right. In October, there's always that fear of that, you know? Sure. You know, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, and, that'd be uh, a bad
0: scene, man, for we uh, all those would, people in town and uh, have, have something like that come through.
1: Yeah, and I saw uh, uh, on the news today, uh, uh, Mr. Davis, Quint Davis, mm-hmm. he was like, you know, he's going, we're not just doing it half ass, man, we're going 100%, baby. That's what he was, you know, he was, he was trying to get, you know, get all energized about it. Right. And, and the reporters just looked at him. But anyway, you know, he, he's a good guy, you know. Yeah,
0: but. yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta, gotta hand it to him, man. It's, uh, you know, Quint doesn't get enough credit you know it's uh you know we we know him as the jazz fest guy but really you know go, going way back he was professor Longhair's uh manager you know t- uh driving around the country w- with him in uganda and the station wagon re- they were driving guys. in uganda well well uganda roberts was, was oh, in, in okay. the car with him our former oh, guest I thought
1: he did the country of uganda
0: well no no i don't well i'm not sure if they made it that far i'm not not in the station wagon anyway but, uh, but, but, yeah, you know, Qu- Quinn has a, a long history in, in New Orleans uh, R&B and, and, uh, b- before he even started the Jazz Fest. So, yes, he's... he's uh...
1: Right. So, you know, it's something, I guess, for people to look forward to. We shall see what happens. You know, uh, other than that, uh, we just had a Father's Day this past weekend. Right. And I know that's a big day for you because you keep wanting your father's love. Yes, and um, <laughs> it never seems to happen every Father's Day.
0: Yeah, well, so, it's it's, it's so how did it
1: go? Because this time you were in town. So yes,
0: th- this time I was in town, so I, I was able to un to avoid that uh, that. That conversation, which is always uncomfortable for him, where he knows at the end I'm going to tell him that I love him, and he's going to have to tell me, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so since we were... Thank in- you. Please
1: come again. Right, come. right, right. Yeah.
0: Uh, or very good. Something like yeah. that. You know, something just uh, mildly uh, 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 acknowledging. Um, but so he was here... And, uh, you know, so it's, it was all, like all the rest of our, our encounters now, which are very pleasant. You know, uh, we have a fine relationship. He's just not t- uh, terribly demonstrative, uh, verbally demonstrative person in, in, in that way. You know, he's spent a lot of time with me as a, as a child. Now, most of it was me, was me uh, carrying the, the tools and, and uh, getting yelled at for bringing the wrong tool. But, but uh, you know, it was, it was quality time nonetheless.
1: But okay, so good. You had a good time. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Well, and we had the whole family over now. Now, how was your father's day? Did, did your, uh, your wife and child acknowledge you properly?
1: Well, here's the thing about my father's day is, is that, uh, my wife, the woman who had this baby claims mm-hmm. that I'm the father. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just have to go with it. I say, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. I'm the father. And, uh, and uh, my child, I think I sent you. You know, she's getting older. She's a sixteen-year-old. A she's getting right. a license tomorrow. In fact, oh, okay. And she uh, looks a
0: lot like you, Manny. It's, uh, I'd it's, it's, uh, you know, she. It's. It would be hard to deny paternity to. Uh, you know. To the have girl. you seen her lately, though? Uh, no, I she, haven't.
1: She's, she's got like some fucking uh, uh, thing through her nose. And okay. Got, Tat- uh, any
0: tattoos yet?
1: No, no tattoos yet. Okay, She's got right. uh, uh some crazy hair color, but anyway, I think I, I sent it to you. you no, know, this is—I don't know where she gets this from, but you know, oh yes, was,
0: oh your Father's Day present. Yes, you did. Yeah. That was, that was the was Father's
1: Sweet. Day present was a a, a a cast of her, a clay cast or a plaster repair cast of her hand giving me the middle finger.
0: Uh huh.
1: <laughs> and, it, it, and it says on each finger spells out L O. You know, L-O-V-E-U, love you.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So I guess she loves me in some way, even though she gave me the middle finger.
0: Well, she, so, she inherited your sense of humor, Manny.
1: I guess so. Uh-huh. I, uh, you know, I don't know where she gets it from. Because you know, I'm not that way. I'm not that way at all. I'm a nice guy.
0: <laughs> you are a nice guy, Manny.
1: <laughs> you know? So uh, we, we sh- I said it, you should post it on our Facebook page or our fan page. Okay, what,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that, we, that, that sounds you good.
1: See, you know, how troubled I am. You know, but other than that uh it's been a, a pretty g- uh good week uh pretty boring you know uh, I haven't done much uh, my My wife did make me one of my favorite dishes for Father's day, and she's become an expert at making it. It's a Mexican dish called chili Colorado, which is a a spicy uh broth uh red sauce kind of broth with uh hmm. with chunks of meat. And you can add some, you know, Mexican cheese to it. And I tell you, man, you eat it and and like halfway through the bowl, you just start sweating. You know, you just yeah. start sweating, man. And she's perfected it just the way, uh, you know, I remember it, you know. So you, know, you got to give it to her, you know, being an Irish-German girl that nice. she is. So that was good. And um, other than that, the only thing uh, I really want to talk about is remember how uh, – you took acid before in your life, or LSD and stuff like that, right?
0: Uh, I I think I did. Yes, yeah, yeah. As far yeah. as I can recall, yeah, I think that right. was, that actually. Well, I
1: remember um, taking acid a few times as uh, in high school, and then maybe a, a couple times as a young adult. And um, I never, you know, they always said you're going to get a flashback.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I didn't get one until like yesterday. Really. I had an acid flashback yesterday, so I guess it was worth the money, you know, so uh, huh. I had an acid flashback, and it was a lot you're of fun. you
0: sure it wasn't just a stroke, Manny? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It might be hard to tell the difference at this point.
1: Well, a stroke doesn't like the side of, you know, some one side of your body starts stiffening up and, and you get all chest pains. I don't, I don't know what a stroke is.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that you could have a variety of symptoms from them. But anyway, well, go I, ahead with your uh, I just
1: It was a flashback, and, and I remember I was, uh, I, it was weird because I started laughing hysterically, and uh, uh, I, I thought I was uh, back in Las Vegas, you know, uh pl- playing blackjack and, and laughing hysterically and nodding off and laughing and nodding off. But you know, it was weird. It, it was weird. So it finally happened. I think after like 28 years, it finally happened. The flashback came back, well, which I'm glad because I'm glad it's over and done with. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that again. I'm too old. Oh, That's you think
0: scary. you only get one? Like, Well, uh, no, let's
1: hope. Let's hope because they, they don't call it acid flashbacks. They well, call it Flashback.
0: I think so, sometimes they do. It depends on <laughs> – I'm not sure that you're done with that. Uh, but Well, uh,
1: we'll see. Maybe by the end of this show.
0: I yeah, uh, very possibly. that, that could. Well, yeah. you'll know, well, you know, well, you'll have to keep the, the troubled nation apprised of your – Oh, I will. Uh, I I'm will. sure you will.
1: <laughs> I will. Um, other than that, uh, the only thing I saw that was interesting to me in the news was that um, – remember, like, during the the, the – start of this pandemic or the peak of the, like last summer. I mean, the whole world was going nuts and stuff like that. I think I remember telling you about how in the Philippines, uh, the president, the dictator there, or the president, whatever you want to call him, was, uh, making people who refused to wear a mask in the Philippines. He was making them, uh, dig the graves. Mm. Remember that? Remember, yeah, I, I, I,
0: I, a, I do. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah. That.
1: Okay. So, all these anti-maskers, he was making them, you know, bury the, the graves for the dead of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And now I just heard just a couple of days ago that that same president who, um, who did that a year ago is now uh, anyone who's an anti-vaxxer in the Philippines. He's sending to prison.
0: Oh, jeez, He's
1: just putting them in jail. So, Stay away yeah. from the Philippines as well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, that guy's a nut, man, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's he's. Uh...
1: Yeah, I, I forget his name and anything like that. I, I yeah. remember the Philippines had a leader who had a lot of shoes. Yeah, yeah, Marcos. Marcos.
0: Like, I think that guy's yeah. name might be like Duarte or something like that. Uh, right?
1: Uh, you know, I, I just, just stay away from the Philippines nation. There's yeah, nothing yeah. good going to happen there. Even if you're wearing a mask or if you're vaccinated, I'm sure they're going to find some something
0: yeah fuck. yeah 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 it's yeah. A, it's a bad scene over there yeah okay well uh uh is that about wrap it up for the uh for the, the housekeeping
1: yeah i guess so except i had one more thing oh, um yeah. you know um have you ever uh you know you get around people you have relationships you know you have friends and family has anyone uh ever been insulted that that you offended their pet hmm
0: um you know I, I i may have on occasion been uh, a little bit uh dismissive of someone's pet yeah that they took offense to yeah i could see that. because
1: okay. just uh a few weeks ago there was uh some family and friends in town and someone brought their dog all the way from like i don't know what state they came from and i happened to be there and and i just said uh and i didn't know this person's uh, wife i didn't know the first time meeting the wife and i And I just said, they brought this dog, and this dog was just, I don't know what kind of fucking dog it was, but it was just freaky looking to me. You know, I don't know if it's some rare breed of dog or whatever, but I just said, man, that is one freaky looking dog. (laughs) And, and, you know, within like 20, 30 minutes, it just, the shit hit the fan, and I had to apologize. And it's just like, well, it was a freaky looking dog. You know, I'm just being honest. right you know it looked like a half poodle half german shepherd i don't know what the fuck it looked like but it it just and it had really weird eyes and stuff like that
0: yeah you yeah know. that happens sometimes with people's kids you know they're <laughs> yeah there are certain certain syndromes that aren't even named you know because they're so rare and uh i've, I've heard that uh pediatricians will, will use, uh, if, if just when they're doing like a well baby visit or something, they'll use this abbreviation, FLK, stands for funny looking kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just, well, so uh but well, this know. is an fld then i guess okay a freaky, yeah, funny, there you a go. freaky looking dog there not, you a go. Funny, but not a freaky looking dog right right but you know whatever i'm sure they'll get over it yeah
0: sure they know it. they know uh, it deep down that's why they were reacting harshly because they know it's true you know i think a, so too yeah, i yeah.
1: think so too i think they know that you know we've got this dog that they love and they spoil rotten and you know, they probably don't have kids or whatever, like that kind of stuff. So they, yeah. They,
0: they, no they, accounting for taste, you know. I'm a, right. A, you know, you know, it, you
1: know, everyone's different. But listen, sure. let's let's get. I'm excited about our guest. So yes. Let's get to our guest. He's yes. been very quiet. He very has
0: been quiet. very quiet. I'm surprised because uh, he's he's usually pretty loquacious, but maybe he's he's uh, saving it all up for uh, for post introduction here. Um, uh, I hope he's still there actually after the, um, <laughs> he might've, might've uh, might taken a, taken his leave. Well, anyway,
2: uh, I don't want to ruin your magic.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well, we can do that all by ourselves. Um, okay. So our, 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 our guest is a, a fantastic guest. We've, we've thought about having him on for a long time. He's a, he's a Grammy award winning songwriter, singer, guitar player, record producer author he's a founding member of the roots rock legends the blasters um uh we could go on and on he's had a terrific solo career and and uh, we'll, we'll get into all that but uh without further ado the great mr dave alvin welcome dave
2: that's well, great to be here you troubled gentlemen
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, again let's not get carried away yeah. Trou- troubled men yeah yeah You know,
2: i had uh, a friend of mine who's a pedal steel player uh, always refers to, you know, you're playing a gig, right? And uh, oftentimes there'll be, you know, interesting people in front of you and, and maybe, a, you know, an attractive uh, woman or two and, and uh, some old pals and, you know, you're having a ball and you're feeding off the audience and you have great gigs. Well, this friend of mine who, he's a guitar player, pedal steel player, you know, plays a variety of string instruments, but he always says that when he's playing pedal steel, the only people that get in front of him and stare are troubled loners. <laughs> and I started watching, you know, and he, yeah, he was right. Yeah. And I'd walk by him and say, you got the troubled loners again tonight. And he'd say, yeah, got the troubled loners.
1: So how many loners are these? Is this like depending on the size of the venue or is it just like always the same amount of loners?
2: It, you'd usually have five to ten troubled loners in front of his pedal steel. <laughs> wow, that's
0: a lot. That's a lot, man. You yeah. know, uh, uh, there there's certain bands that uh, that I've I played in, or or you know, w- when I think about going to see them, I can picture the crowd, and and my shorthand for it is like uh, guys in army jackets with no girlfriends, um, <laughs> and. And you know, there's certain like guitar hero kind of uh, acts that uh, I could just predict, yeah, that's going to be a room full of guys in army jackets with no girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> and I never wanted to play in a band like that because uh, it's it's <laughs> it's tough going, man.
2: Yeah, one of the weirder tours I ever did was uh, a million years ago, like in the early 90s, I did this weird tour, I had done a tour. I had the same booking agent as Richard Thompson. Okay. And so he and I did a bunch of acoustic shows together, and, that, and it was great. And then this booking agent thought, well, one of my other acts is Adrian Ballou, the experimental guitar player.
0: Yep, that's going to be one. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, he he um, he wanted to do an acoustic tour, and, and so we had the same booking agent. My booking agent at the time thought, well, let's put Dave, he did so well with Richard Thompson. Let's put him with Adrian Ballou. And uh, yeah, it did not work. You walk out, and yeah, it was a, it was a club full of troubled loners. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember distinctly the very first gig um, was at the Paradise in Boston. And I walked out on stage, and you know, Adrian's a magnificent musician and, oh, yeah. and, a, and a wonderful guy. But we sort of have different musical and, and visual looks. And so I walk out on stage and one of the troubled loners pressed up against the stage at the Paradise turns to his pal and says, oh, God, I bet the first song is going to be about Texas.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and the sad thing was, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and I actually i only did about i lasted about five gigs of that tour and i called the booking agent and i just said eh, this ain't working out you know there's it's me against the guitar geeks out there and you know um yeah so yeah i know what you mean
0: yeah yeah it's it's funny you can after a while you can you can just pick them you could go down a like a you know a tip calendar and go yep that's going to be one right there that's going to <laughs> well, Dave, let's let's get back to to uh, your career. So you're you're from uh, uh, Downey, California, which uh, is also uh, where the Carpenters were from. So were you super into the Carpenters <laughs> when you were a kid?
2: Uh oh, you bet. <laughs> Cause, cause
0: I, I actually do really love the Carpenters, uh, but uh, I kind of say that facetiously. I'm, I'm sure they're they're hometown heroes uh, of a sort.
2: Well, you know, I have to admit, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I was so into blues and rhythm and blues and, and jazz and stuff uh, that I, and, and you know, I'm rock and roll sure. that no, I did not like them at all. I sure. hated them.
0: Yeah, and, I could, um, you know, I could see that. Yeah.
2: You know, and, and all the local kids hated them because it yeah. was like, uh, you know, it's not like, uh, Hey, you know, the Beatles are from our hometown. Hey, the Stones are from our hometown. Hey, the carpenters are from our home. <laughs> and, uh, and I even they even with their with their money that they had made, they, they built a couple of apartment buildings in Downey. And uh, and, the, and, the, and the apartment buildings had these huge wooden signs out in front. And one was called uh, one apartment building was called We've Only Just Begun. Hmm. And the other apartment building was called Close to You. And, uh, and that th- th- had musical scales, you know, musical notes on the, on the mm-hmm. big sign. And th- these signs were about, you know, four, four foot by, you know, four foot by five, you know. And they would hang in front of the apartment building. And, uh, you know, so me and my pals got drunk one night. You know, Statue of Limitations has expired since the early 70s. Sure. And, uh, yeah, so we went and stole the Close to You sign. Off the thing, you know, we were, you know, we were just embarrassed, you know, to to be, you know, there was a local surf instrumental band called the Rumblers back in the early '60s who were badass. Sort of, they weren't even really a surf band; they were an instrumental white R&B band, guitar, Mm -hmm. you know, guitar and sax driven. And I always felt kinship with the Rumblers. But after saying all that, I have to say that uh, as an adult. I really have come not to appreciate so much their records and all that, but to appreciate her voice.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: And to appreciate, um, you know, and I, you know, I would have loved to have gotten her out of that cocoon. Right. You know? um, and, you know, the aesthetic cocoon.
1: Right. And did you, did you know, Dave, that right next door to those apartments was a Karen Carpenter diet shop? Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but, uh, yeah. but, uh, uh well, you grew up
1: there. You would know, but listen, you're from Downey. Where'd you go to high school? I'm to that one too. <laughs> Where'd you go to high school in Downey? St. Pius the 10th. Oh, okay. Cause you know, uh, I went to Westside high school, uh, uni high, but, uh, as the punk rock thing, and I started getting into the punk rock thing, I, I had to get a leather jacket. Yeah. I, went to, I went to some army surplus store in Downey. Uh-huh. to get my first leather jacket.
2: Congratulations.
1: And, and the guy at the surplus store, he was just like, this is the finest leather jacket you're going to get, son. And he told me how to take care of it. He told me how to, you know, uh, get it like a Kesher's mitt, you know, break it in and stuff like that. And uh, I had no idea if that place is still there today, but it cost me that. Back then, That it was like 1979, 80. That jacket cost me like $80. Mm. Yeah. Who, who knows how much it costs now, but.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's
1: my that's my real memory of Downey. I didn't spend too much time in Downey.
2: Well, you you West Side guys did.
1: I can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, I was on the I was on the Venice Boardwalk a lot, or as I moved out of the house, I stumbled into Hollywood quite often and stuff like that. Hustling that your great. ass, yeah, 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 yeah. Hustling my, you know, under the uh, L.A. bridge, you know.
2: Sure. Yeah, you know, my brother never forgave me. And this is sort of true. You may have forgiven me by now, but, you know, as soon as, you know, we Blasters started making some money because we'd all been working day jobs and shit. And um, back in the early days, you know, when we were just getting started, right. but as soon as we started making money, me and the drummer moved up to, yeah, we moved up to uh, Hollywood, you know, and my brother and I've never gone back, you know. Because wherever I am, I'm a downy. That's just that's just the case. Uh-huh. But my brother's never forgiven me from for moving uh, west of the Harbor Freeway. Uh-huh. My brother is my brother is a you know you can move to Long Beach, but you can't move to the West Side. <laughs> you know,
0: right? Well, on.
1: I still lived. I was on the West Side, but I was still east of the uh, four hundred five. So I didn't really consider myself a beach guy, but I did go to the beach a lot and hang out and stuff like that. Trying to find a sweet spot there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I understand. So your first apartment in Hollywood, where was that at? Was it off a fountain somewhere?
2: No, it was actually, uh, it was actually really nice. It was on uh, uh, it was three blocks east of La Brea on a street called Mansfield. Sure. So about yeah. three blocks south of Melrose.
1: Oh, that's a sweet spot, yeah,
2: it was. We had great landlords that uh, I lived there for about five years and and uh, yeah it was and that
1: that was the heyday of that neighborhood too. yeah, I mean there was a lot of shit going on. you had Melrose Avenue, which was exploding, and then you were so close to everything,
2: yeah, I like
1: so that yeah, that was a sweet spot to be in,
2: yeah, and we were on slash records, uh, or let me rephrase that we were getting robbed by Slash records <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, who wasn't back then? Yeah. And, uh, and they were only a few blocks away. And so that was a, that was a great, you know, it was a great place to hang, you know?
0: Well, Dave, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit and tell us about, uh, like how you started playing guitar in Downey. What, uh, was there some, some mythic story of a yard man teaching you the forms or, uh, how did, how did that all go down? You and Phil there?
2: Uh, well, Phil and I learned differently, you know, uh, the, the main first musical influences we had were our older cousins. And we had a cousin Donna who was uh, the eldest of our cousins, and she she was a '50s rock and roll teenager. Uh, mm-hmm. She was from a little town called Bell, which is uh, uh, right next to Bell Gardens, which is just west of Downey. And uh, and she, yeah, she she was uh, she'd give us all her old rhythm and blues and rockabilly and rock and roll records when she was tired of them. You know, she'd play them out and then she'd hand them to us. Mm-hmm. So. Very early age, we had you know Big Joe Turner and Ray Charles and you know uh, a couple of Sun records and Eddie Cochran stuff, you know Jerry Lee kind of things, Ricky Nelson, you know that kind of, and then um, you know and a lot of doo wop. She loved do you know West Coast doo wop, you know the medallions and you know um, the the jacks and things like that, groups like that. Um, do you
1: still have those records? Yes, sir. Oh, that's great. Wow. That's yeah. amazing.
2: The ones that haven't been stolen. and uh, you still have that cousin? No, she's she's passed away sadly. Oh, oh sorry. sorry. And, uh, yeah, she was the one that, you know, taught us how to make fart sounds with our arms and, <laughs> and uh, you know, how to hold a cigarette correctly, you know, when, when I was like six, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Never
0: too early to learn.
2: Never too early. And, but then we had a, another of our older cousins was a guy named Mike Keller, who is still with us, thankfully, and wonder, doing wonderfully. And he was a folky and he was into, uh, you know, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Dave mm-hmm. Van Rock, uh, Pete Seeger, early Bob Dylan. And so he played banjo and guitar. And then I had a cousin, uh, uh, JJ who lived, grew up on a, on a ranch back when there were ranches out in the West San Fernando Valley and uh, he grew up, uh, and his, uh, out there, where his influences were like, you know, Buck Owens and people like that, you know, George Jones. And uh, so, family gatherings, you know, were, were sort of like my records.
0: Sounds yeah. so great, man! Like, what a great cross section of material! Holy cow, man! There's not a loser in the bunch.
2: Yeah, you know, I never, I never really, I never, I mean, I understand genres of music. And I understand the difference between Texas blues and Chicago blues. I know the difference between West Coast jazz and East Coast jazz. I know the difference between Kansas City jazz and New Orleans jazz. Mm-hmm. I know all that stuff. You know, I understand the difference between West Coast country and Nashville country. And right. you know, t- what's a Texas shuffle and what's a, you know, what's a I don't know.
0: Yeah, Chicago shuffle. Sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. I know all the right. difference between those things. But I'm also not a genre guy in that. You know, I, I'm really a blues guy is what I am. Um, but uh, as a songwriter, I don't want to be limited to genres. And as a fan of music, I don't want to be limited to genres. And as, when you're a kid, you don't know, you know, you don't like I remember hearing on the radio, AM radio, when I was a kid, you'd hear Sam Cooke followed by the Beatles, followed by Buck Owens, yeah. you know, followed by uh, Dusty Springfield. Was and
1: that on KRLA or KHJ? Uh, either. Yeah. Yeah, either KRLA was my station. I love that. And my mom used to play it constantly because of the the mix. You, you, yeah.
2: These- yeah, and there was a great DJ on KRLA back in like around starting around sixty eight through sixty nine was a guy named Jimmy Rabbit who just recently passed away. And I got a lot of my musical education from him because he had the nighttime slot and he was from somewhere up outside of the Dallas area in Texas. And so he would play lightning Hopkins and the staple singers followed by, you know, Graham Parsons and the flying burrito brothers and the Dillard and Clark, you know, band and, uh, and then play, you know, Bob Dylan and follow it by the Sir Douglas quintet, follow it by, you know, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, Hallin Wolf or, or, you know, Kenny Burrell, you know, Yeah. His AM radio. And, uh, and so I'd lay awake at night with my, you know, as as Rod Hodges and my song about nine volt heart goes. I'd have my little transistor radio and I'd be listening to Jimmy Rabbit, letting it all soak in. You know, he played Fred Neil. You know, where else? Where were we going to hear Fred Neal on AM radio? Right. Uh, and uh, so yeah, I just soaked all that stuff in. And as far as being a guitar player, uh, I, I I came late to the game because Downey, for whatever reason, had a had a large variety of great guitar players. Um, You know, these are older guys, of course. And um, um, if you wanted to get invited to the jam sessions, guitar was the last thing you wanted to play because there were guys that could play, you know, there's one guy, Gary Massey, that could play, he could play like two guys. He could play like T-Bone Walker and Jimmy Reed. And really, that was it. That was his deal. Uh-huh. And then there was a guy, but he did it like nobody. He did it as good as, almost as good as T-Bone or Jimmy Reed. And uh, then there was a guy named Mike Roach who could play anything. He could play Bach. He could play outer space, you know, jazz. He could play anything. Um, and uh, so there's all these great guitar players. So if you wanted to get invited to a jam session to hang out with the older guys and look at girls, you had to play something else and uh i had no interest in being a bass player so i played saxophone and flute oh. so i got invited to the jam sessions and uh but i what i would do you know was my brother always had a blues band he started having blues bands when he was about 13. wow and uh so when they'd go take a break to get hamburgers or go smoke cigarettes i'd run in i'd I mean, i'd be staring at the guitar players and then they'd leave and I'd grab their guitar and try to figure out how, how did they do that? You know, how, where does that magic come from? And so it wasn't, I didn't really start playing guitar until I was, not even semi-seriously, but until I was around 17.
1: Wow, so no I, kidding.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Interesting. So when you played the flute, did you score with the chicks?
2: Yeah. Cool.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it can be done. It can be done, Manny.
1: Dave, just going back to KRLA for just a second. I I remember back in the seventies when I was a teenager, and my mom would be playing it on uh, on Friday nights. For some reason, KRLA used to play all the cholo music. You know, that was it was cholo night where all the lowriders would listen to like you know stuff from the fifties and sixties, and and that was so uh, entertaining at the same time, very hilarious because you had seventeen year old cholos listening to like you know fifties stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know,
1: uh,
2: it was very hilarious. Well, it was, it was, uh, it's still kind of like that, but not really. You know, hip hop has taken over everything. Oh, yeah, I know. But uh, there's still a little bit of that. You know, you still see the cars with Earth Angel stenciled on the side yeah. window. Yeah. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or, you know, you're mine and we belong together. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, Love all yeah. This stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that shit will never die, man.
2: Yeah, we well, got those great groups, you know yeah. uh you had all those great you know uh you know the uh, the the Midnighters and uh, little Julian Herrera and all those cats up in East l a you know they working all the way you know really till now you know the Southies brothers who later had Tierra and everything you know, so that was always part of the scene that that kind of music that sort of rhythm blues you know.
0: Right. Well, so Dave, you know, I see pictures of 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 you and Phil from your childhood. You know, these black and white pictures, like y'all on a pony or something. You know, you got your checkered shirts on. It looks so idyllic, you know, and it it looks like from another time. Now, I know your father was was like a, a labor organizer. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. So, so you come from a a, a proud uh, organized labor background, like uh, you know, I, I love yes, that. Sir. I love that, and and I'm sure that. Uh, largely informed your, your worldview, you know, the, 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 that hardworking, uh, you know, resolute yet somewhat optimistic uh, square jawed. I don't know. How do you think, how do you feel about that?
2: Well, yeah, uh, my old man, uh, I'm, I'm a mixed marriage, you know, my old man was a Polish Catholic and uh, he, he was born to immigrant parents in South Bend, Indiana. His first language was Polish my old man could speak uh, uh, German, Czech. You know, just because of the neighborhood he grew up in. Right. Um, he could even speak touch, uh, touches of Hungarian and Russian. And uh, in the Dep- his first language, like I said, was Polish, and you know, his second language was English. And you know, because of the insular nature of, of those Rust Belt cities in those days, at the in the you know, my dad was born in nineteen uh, sixteen, and. Um, And then, you know, he came out to California, he rode the rails out in the depression. You know, he was one of those guys. Okay. And uh, while my mom's family was, you know, I'm a fifth generation Californian on my mom's side of the family. So we go, my mom's family goes way, way back. And they, of course, were, they were, of course, were Protestant. So you know, like I said, I'm a mixed product of a mixed marriage man, you know
0: right, so not quite oaky experience, but similar kind of a, a new transplant uh experience well uh, it,
2: was, it was oaky enough to come out on the ride the rails
0: right, that's what I mean. I said not not from legitimately Oklahoma, but close enough yeah very very similar experience
2: you know I, I think as many people came from Arkansas and uh, Missouri. As Okies, they, they just all got lumped in as being Okies.
1: Right, right. And, and your mom was from Downey? They met in Downey or what,
2: how did that? No, no, not at all. My mom came from a little town um, called Reedley, which is about uh, 20 miles south of Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how do
1: they, how do they meet your parents?
2: Oh, man, it's a long story.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, forget it then. <laughs>
2: was a factory girl my dad came home from the war and, and she was cute you know? nice there you go uh, uh, again
0: this this very idyllic uh kind of you know post-war experience uh that's uh, just a, as i imagined it so so uh you know you and phil grow up on the, the the blues and r&b and all these great records and this great musical family and and at what point do you do you uh you know, start having a band together and, and, and for, you know, formulate the proto blasters or how does that go?
2: Uh, that didn't happen until I always, I could sit in, like I said, in in when we were teenagers, I could sit in with my brother's blues band playing. If Lee Allen, the great New Orleans sax player, who, mm-hmm. no, who we knew since we were, since I was 13 and Phil was about 15, um, if Lee couldn't make the gig with Phil's blues band, then yeah, I could go and play sax terribly. Um,
0: so Lee was already playing uh, in, in Phil's band at that point.
2: Yeah, fun, yeah.
0: How did y'all hook up with him at, at that early age?
2: Uh, we'd already been following around. We we started, Phil and I and, and and the other members of the Blasters and other friends of ours, started hanging out at this club called the Ashgrove, uh, which, uh, which was in West West Hollywood on Melrose back when Melrose was just a sleepy street of, uh, auto repair shops and reupholstery shops. And, uh, and there was this nightclub called the Ashgrove that didn't have an age limit. And mm-hmm. so we would, we would catch rides somehow. The tw- it was 22 miles to get from our house to the, to the Ashgrove. And we would beg, borrow, cajole. I don't want to use the other word. <laughs> um, you know, because I don't know about statute of limitations, but we would get to the Ash Ashgrove, you know, and so, you know, uh, we got to be, and Big Joe Turner would be playing or T-Bone Walker, Lightning Hopkins, nice. um, you know, and so we started following Big Joe Turner around from gig to gig because Big Joe and T-Bone and Eddie Cleanhead, Vincent and guys like that lived in LA. And so they were playing, they'd play a gig like the Ash Grove which was a mixed crowd. It could be lawyers. It could be truck drivers. It could be white. It could be black. It was a big mixture of people. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, then they'd be doing neighborhood gigs in South central, you know, or something. And and we'd go to those, you know, and we, we got in a lot of times just because of the nature of what are those little kids doing here? what are those (laughs) little white kids doing here? Right. And, uh, but also big Joe kind of took us under, under his wing. He, My brother, from the first time he saw Big Joe, my brother could imitate Big Joe Turner's voice. Yeah, And then at first it tickled Big Joe. And then, I don't know, a few months later, Big Joe said, told my brother, um, why don't you quit embarrassing yourself and embarrassing me and just learn how to sing like yourself, which my brother then figured out how to do. And although he could still sing like Big Joe Turner, like like nobody else. Yeah. Um, So anyway... And through Big Joe and this, this wonderful woman named Mary Franklin, who uh, was, uh, as, as my brother would say, she and T-Bone, they had an understanding. <laughs> um, and she started managing my brother's band, and um, and she and Lee were friends. And so then Lee started, you know, like I said, I was about 13, 13 and a half, 14. Lee started, yeah, sitting in with Phil's band. And so as, as much as any of the other members of the Blasters, I grew up with Lee Allen. You know, wow. so Lee had left New Orleans and had moved out to L.A., you know.
0: Right. For, for anybody that doesn't know Lee Allen, you know, is a giant of uh, New Orleans rock and roll saxophone, played, you know, all, all the Cosmo Batassa sessions, uh, you know, Fats Domino.
2: Beautiful Fats Domino, melodic solos. That's Lee, the Little Richard, Professor Longhair stuff, Ball the Wall, that stuff. Yep. Uh, Roy Brown, Shirley and Lee, come on, baby, let the good times roll. Uh, you know Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns. That's all Lee Allen. You know, yep,
0: yep. A giant, a giant. It's incredible that that uh, you guys were were there with him as as teenagers. Uh, you know, growing up under that that tutelage.
2: Greatest musical lesson I ever had. I went over to his house and and honked around, and you know, and I wanted to play both like Lee Allen and John Coltrane at the same time. You know, yeah. I didn't where I was at. And Lee, you know, he would say, he'd say, David, what you need to do is we're going to run some scales, then we're going to stop, smoke cigarette, read the newspaper, then we're going to run some more scales, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's pretty much the way I practice guitar now, you know.
0: Okay, nice, nice, nice. Well, uh, well Dave, uh, you know, we always take a little break, and Manny, I'm looking at my, at my glass. It seems like about that time. What do you think?
1: Sure, let's do it. Uh, Trouble Nation, you know the drill. Uh, we'll be right back.
4: Marie Marie.
0: With Mister Manny Chevrolet, I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Mister Dave Alvin. Now, Dave, I am guessing that you are not familiar with uh, with this product, but uh, we have a terrific product that we've been associated with for uh, a little over a year now. It's exciting, very dynamic company. Um, Manny, why don't you tell uh, Dave all about this terrific product?
1: Dave, I am going to tell you about this terrific product. It's called the Vello Bar.
0: Mm.
1: Vello Bar, V E L. B-E-L-O, bar. This is basically a protein bar, but it's got 25 milligrams of CBD per bar. It takes the edge off of whatever you're dealing with right now. I don't know what your vices are, what you're doing these days, you know. but CBD seems to be a healthy uh, product now that all the kids are into. And uh, Right now, we're promoting this Velo Bar. It's a plant-based protein bar made up of supergroup, Superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds. Everyone knows about this bar. It's a great bar to, uh, to eat after like a workout or maybe working in the yard, you know, doing some gardening or mowing the lawn or um, punching a hole through the wall, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> and, right, it's a, and it could be a great breakfast bar. I mean, I like it after doing uh, uh, calisthenics. People don't do calisthenics much anymore, but I do.
0: In prison, they uh, do, but uh, uh,
1: you know, yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm in my own prison.
0: Sure, you know. <laughs> of course, aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I'm
1: in my own prison right now, and that's where the velo bar comes in, right, Dave? Dave, uh, uh, you seem you've been around. You've been around the block, uh, is what they say, right? You've been around, man. You've around. seen it. You've you've seen it come and go, but right now. What's coming, and it's not leaving anytime soon, is the Velo Bar. The Velo Bar is taking off, man. And right now, Dave, if you go to com and take uh, make an order, you'll get 15% off your uh, order by using the Troubled Men discount code called Troubled one 15 That's the code. And as always, there's free shipping. And Dave, it comes in two beautiful flavors, dark chocolate and peanut butter. So, Oh, my God. You know, yeah, so uh, check it out. And, and in fact, if you're if you're interested, the uh, CEO of the company will send you uh, uh, some free samples if you're interested. And just let us know after the show, and uh, we'll set you up, man. So, Troubled Nation, you know the drill. VeloBarCBD.com, fifteen percent off by using the troubled One Five promo code. Free shipping. It's fabulous. And, you know, Renee, uh, I I talked to the CEO over the weekend, over Father's Day weekend, and uh, he told me that uh, his son had just returned from the prom on Father's Day when the prom was like four days before Father's Day. Wow, he okay. just got so his son had a good time. Ship
0: off the old block, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think well,
1: so. I think so. Yeah. yeah well, I the CEO so.
0: was a was a a feral hippie child, so uh, I guess you know it's, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree.
1: And I got a photo of the uh, the his son and his and his prom date, and she was not bad.
0: Okay, well, Manny, (laughs) you're talking about a 17-year-old girl, so I don't know.
1: Well, I could still still see beauty in anything. Sure, sure, sure,
0: sure. You can remember the 17-year-old you that would appreciate having a date like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know. Come on, on,
1: where's your mind going? I know, I'm just, uh, you know, I'd like to Immediately just jump to conclusions about
0: Oh, I don't think so, Manny. You know, (laughs) you know
1: who I am.
0: I know, I know. You're a solid citizen, Manny. Okay, well, uh, uh, so yeah, check out the the Velo Bar and and Nation. You know, if you want to support the Troubleman Podcast directly, you can jump on that uh, that PayPal link there and the for the uh, cocktail fund. Uh, buy me and Manny a, a cocktail, or uh, even better yet, uh, get some skin in the game with, by joining our our Patreon page. And uh, you know, we seem to have plateaued on the the Patreon membership, so it's not going down, but it's. But uh, it, it definitely has some some upside potential. So uh, everybody, uh, you know, avail yourself of the of the 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 Patreon page, and uh, you know, again, we we still have the uh, troubled men T-shirts for sale, and uh, you know, like us on uh, on all the social media and follow us and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, and and if you do that, we can continue to bring you terrific guests like our great guest tonight, Mr. Dave Alvin. So, Dave, when we when we just left you, uh, uh, you were the the Blasters had had formulated a four piece band and or not quite. Actually, you're under the tutelage of of the great Lee Allen, but you're working your way up to uh, to to being the Blasters. And then you. So that's like 1979. The the band coalesces and, uh, you know, you move uh, to Hollywood. And, uh, t- 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 tell us in those, those early days of where punk rock is, is, is exploding, but then the blasters have this tremendous, you know, rockabilly blues, uh, uh, you know, the word Americana hadn't been invented yet, but, but the uh, sort of, uh, uh, hyped up almost punk version of that. But you guys are coexisting with all these straight punk bands. What, what was that like?
2: it was great. It was a wonderful time to be alive in Los Angeles, you know? one of the better times to be alive in Los Angeles. Um, in the early days of, of punk rock, in the early days of that L.A. scene, you know, there were certainly clicks, and there were certainly, uh, we don't like that band, they're not punk. <laughs> um, but in general, um, there was, you know, a lot of the bands did not sound alike. There was a great, uh, you know, X did not sound like the Weirdos. Um, the Weirdos uh, did not sound like uh, the Screamers. Uh, the screamers did not sound like the plugs uh, you know you go down the list everybody sounded differently um you know it, they were they're, that,
1: that's such a great point for that period it's such a good point
2: yeah people tend not to realize that you know they, yeah and then what happened like in the early 80s uh was punk rock became kind of a cookie cutter thing mm-hmm. and the sort of people that said well that's not punk took over and uh, so if, if it didn't fit the sort of uh beach community thrash, which is, which is great stuff, you know? Uh, but um, some of the fans took it as like that, that is the only thing possible. And so that, that's when I lost interest in it. But in the early days, yeah, it was great. You know I mean? W- we did gigs, uh, you know, with everybody, X, um, you know, again, the weirdos, the plugs, the Dickies, um, you know, um, you know, did you ever
1: play with the Minutemen?
2: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Fuck, yeah, you know, Mike. What I knew, D-Boom oh,
1: yeah. uh, fucking. They were great. One of the greatest yeah, bands they didn't ever. Sound
2: like any of the bands that I've mentioned,
1: right? Exactly. You, you just said that no one sounded like each other. You know, it was the Minutemen were the shit to me, man. Those yeah. guys blew me away.
2: Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest things I ever saw was we did a benefit. Blasters played a benefit in San Pedro uh, at a place called Dancing Waters, and it was for the uh, San Pedro Free Clinic. And this would be around eighty-one, somewhere around in there. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike Watt had a broken leg, and um, and I was kind of bitching because I had sort of a semi-flu, and so I'm down at the gig and I'm feeling pretty terrible. And Mike Watt's got a broken leg. I mean, a newly broken leg. He's got a brand new cast on. He's got he's on crutches. Minutemen go out on stage. Mike Watt throws the crutches into the crowd and starts bouncing all over the stage for a bass <laughs> and all that. And I'm looking at him and I and go, Well, I can't bitch about having flu like symptoms. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, Mike and, yeah, I go way back with Mike. Um, you know, we even did a couple of poetry readings together, you know, so.
0: Well, you know, l- looking at, at the 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 whole history of all that, I, what what strikes me is is the the kind of cross pollination that you guys had. You know, like, uh, you know, like you and John uh, Doe. You know, uh, you know, b- now did you know John uh, before X even or or?
2: No, it just seemed like I did.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. But then like, you know, y'all play in like, you know, the, you and John and the flesh eaters and the, the Knitters, and, and, you know, and you know, you guys hanging out at top Jimmy, it sounds like a, it, it just feels like, you know, somebody who wasn't there, like a, a very intermingled scene. Like it would have been. Yeah. So-
2: oh, it was, it was, you know, I mean, the thing about the blasters was each guy in the band, if you put him in a, like say a straight blues band could play in a straight blues band perfectly. You know, in those days, there was a lot of lot of bars up and down the, the West Coast that were like lounge gigs. You know, but they but they had blues bands, and the, the blues they played was you know sort of based off of the West Coast, the old nineteen forties, fifties West Coast style of blues. But it was you know, it was white guys in general doing it, and they were all great musicians. But they played, you know, they played way back. You know what I mean? They they pulled the, they pulled the energy back, and uh, and you know, and any of the blasters, my brother, Johnny Baz, Bill Bateman, Gene Taylor, any of them could fit into one of those groups perfectly. But when you put them all together with me, <laughs> then things got out of hand. And then everything became, you know, three times as fast and everything became intense and my brother would start sweating like nobody's business and I'd start sweating and then Bill Bateman would be bleeding all over his kit. You know, we, we... Our idea was, um, without putting it into the words, but we just knew it, was, you know, we felt that when we played, the way we played blues, R&B, rockabilly, whatever, roots music, uh, was more akin to what the punk rock was than, right. say, the sort of the bands, you know, whether it was a traditional blues or a traditional country band or whatever. We just had, you know, we were like hopped up on methamphetamines, you know. I mean, right. not not literally, but musically, we were. And uh, and so, you know, there were certainly punk rock kids that, that hated us, you know. Um, you know, and, and I still have my old Fender Mustang still has beer bottles, <laughs> you know, a beer bottle glass in its body from from various buckets of blood like the cuckoo's nest down in Costa Mesa. Um,
1: oh, God, that, oh, man. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. You, you I remember there, that place. You get so killed in that place. Yeah, I'm not exaggerating, and but on the other hand, yeah, a lot of the punk rock kids, you know, relate. You know, when we came out and played, uh, say, an old Jerry Lee song like "High School Confidential" eighteen times faster than Jerry Lee ever played, mm-hmm. they it was like, bah! you know, they, <laughs> they could fly through the air and spit and throw beer bottles, it was just as happy as as if they were doing it to, uh, you know, to uh, you know, the Dickies.
0: Right. And, and so, and by, by doing that, you kind of open the door to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, this, this audience for, you know, this American roots music. And, you know, we had Bill Kirchin on a few weeks ago yeah. and Bill says, hi, he says, uh, you know, oh, I love Dave. And uh, Bill. D- during that, we talked about, about how uh, commander Cody with, with hot rod Lincoln kind of, uh, you know, s- kind of re-injected American roots music into the, the radio of the early seventies in a, in a, in a large way, the blasters kind of did the same thing at the, the, the early eighties or, you know, end of the seventies, you know, like, like that music seems so vital and,
1: and, you know,
0: it's.
2: uh, Well, thanks. Yeah.
1: Well, well, Dave, Dave, let me ask you. So all you guys are hitting the scene, you're hitting it hard and everyone's getting signed, right? Yeah. Well, Okay. Most people
2: are getting signed. Certain people are getting signed. Yeah. You know, okay. there, was a, there was a period where, you know, a lot of the – band, for example, X could sell out the Whiskey Go-Go for three nights. Yes. Or the Blasters could sell it out for two, three nights. And we c- none of us could get a major label deal. Oh, and, God. You know, that kind of deal. And then somebody that was – say, opening a showcase, a singer-songwriter showcase at, I don't know, you know, some little club, they get some astronomical record deal, And you know. The <laughs> and our the guys in those days did not like what was happening in L.A. And I, I never, you know, the Blasters, we kind of developed this, um, and, you know, we're talking 80, 1980, you know, 81, you know. Yeah. Uh, we developed this killer attitude, you know, of, you know, we were headhunters. We didn't want to be but if you if you provoked us yes we could turn it on and there was I remember we did a we did a, a a gig for this guy we did a favor and the favor was there was this guy who remained nameless he was a very nice guy very talented guy but he he had no following he had no nothing and he was sort of he'd gotten a million dollar record deal and that was like the big news was so and so got a million dollar record deal. Well, he hadn't been playing LA, he hadn't been doing anything, and so his managers called me up and asked a favor because I booked the band in those days, and they said, Could, "Would you guys open up for so and so?" And I was like, "Ah, who is he?" You know? Well, he just got a million dollar record deal, which of course I uh, was certainly. Uh, my alarms are going off, really, <laughs> really, and you're calling me to get you know, to have us play to get people to come to his show (laughs) and we can't get a fucking record deal. And, um, so I took the gig and, you know, I told everybody, Hey, this guy, so-and-so just got a million dollar record deal. I don't know. He may be great. I don't know, but we're going to open for him and we're going to kill him. And uh, that's what we did. And we didn't want to, you know, no choice. Well, yeah, we were left no choice. It's like, okay, here's your million dollar record deal, you know, and here's our record deal that we can't get in your face, right, right. And uh, and yeah, I said he's a very nice guy, very talented musician, but his record, his million dollar record deal, was a one record deal. You know, it only lasted for one record, and that one record didn't sell any copies. You know, was that guy Bob Forrest? Uh, <laughs> no, chorus no, didn't come along until years later.
1: <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. but okay, so you get signed and I just remember that your the first album you guys came out of or second, and that iconic uh, uh, record, uh, the vinyl, the picture.
2: Yeah, my brother's face. yeah.
1: yeah, your brother's face. I mean, I saw that and I was just like, man, this is ho- this is this hilarious, it's amazing. And it's going to sell some records. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let's talk to Slash Records
1: and find. Out. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Well, uh,
0: open the books.
1: Yeah, yeah, open the, open the books. Yeah.
0: Well, but then actually, so so that record uh, gets y'all signed from Slash to Warner's, which which winds up being kind of a a pipeline of for other uh, Slash bands to to wind up on Warners So a whole whole stream of people who come after you after you after the blasters kick the gates open
2: yeah yeah that's exactly right well i didn't want to leave slash but on the other hand um you know because i really liked it and i liked all the people that worked there and um and so but warner brothers also had that thing of you know they had you know they had ry cooter and randy newman and they had and lenny warnaker Help those guys make whatever record they wanted to make, and so it was like, "Oh man, it'd be kind of cool to be there." You know, Warner Brothers understands, you know, "quote unquote" their artists. You know, right. and and, uh, and of course, Lenny is uh, Lenny Warneker, who was the president of Warner's, was a great guy. Is a great guy. Yeah, um, he doesn't take my phone calls, but he's a great guy. <laughs> okay. and, uh, um, but then yeah, but what happened after we set up our deal, which was we 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 kept the Slash logo for 15% of our money that we gave to Slash. They got to put their logo on our records. And uh, uh, well, we were basically a Warner's, Warner Brothers act. And then, but then after we signed and did that deal, then then Slash and Warners did a deal, you know, similar to so many deals of the late 80s and 90s, you know, that came later where, where independent label signs with major label. It was like one of the first kind of deals of that sort and so, yeah, the, the bands that came after us on, Slash, like Los Lobos and and uh, Violent Femmes and people like that, yeah, all you know were were beneficiaries of, of our bust bus, busting the door in with our heads. Yeah.
1: Right. Who, produ- who produced your first record, your first album? Uh, we did. You go, you did okay, all right. Well, uh, this is something that comes up. Uh, Renee and I have talked about this, and you talk about the uh, uh, the plugs and Los Lobos and. Um, did you ever feel, back then, because everyone was getting signed and stuff and putting out records, but to me there was always a, a few bands, like the Plugs, who just, you'd see them live and you'd say, man, these guys are fucking amazing, and then they put their record out and it's just like, I don't hear it, I can't. I don't get it, I I, I don't hear it, I don't hear, I don't hear them anymore.
0: It didn't translate, Manny, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it
1: didn't translate. Yeah, you know, uh, uh y- like Fishbone was one of those bands. Fishbone was one of those bands who I loved, you know, going to see them all the time. And then when they, I go by their record, I go, man, this just this, this doesn't watch.
2: It's hard. It's hard, especially when you're a bar band. Yeah. You're playing in clubs and you, especially when you're young and you don't have a, like, you know, the Beatles had George Martin who explained to them that your bar gig is one thing and your records are another. And uh, we we had, the Blasters had troubles, particularly on our second album for Slash Warners. We had trouble. We produced ourselves and it was, it was terrible, you know, not, not the songs or the performances, but it just didn't cut it, you know, because uh, it's a long story I won't get into, but it's true with a lot of bands. Like, you know, the Plugs made some good records, this and the other, but there was also a, there was this thing against high-end Sonics in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you had high-end sonics, that was not punk rock. And so that's why the X records on Slash and then even the ones on Electra afterwards for a long time did not have high-end sonics on them, you know? Um okay. And they're, they're, those are great albums, but are they sonically great? No, they're not. So you were up against, you didn't want to look like you were selling out. But then I'll tell you what, what completely changed my mind was the, the, the album fear did on slash. Um, because the first, their first record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that first album came screaming off the turntable, <laughs> you know, just screaming. And it was like, I, I was, I listened to it again and again, one, because I liked fear, but also more than anything, it was like how I, these guys do not sound like this live. You know, right. but it sounds like them live. Wow. Uh, I, I the that, that's
1: a that's a really good example, yeah. Because that record really, yeah, you, exactly what you said. It sounds like them live, but it's not them live. It's them on
2: vinyl, and it really it cut. Yeah, that, cut that was a that was a sonically like for me. That was the punk rock record that said, uh, "Hey, you know, we can make you know uh, professional sounding loud records," you know, and uh, and I think that you know, things started to change around then also, you know, were, we're, sort of the faux punk ethos, you know, there's, there's real punk ethos and it's faux punk. And, uh, and the faux started fading for a lot of the artists, you know, I mean, it, it, you look at the Go-Go's, the Go-Go's had been a, had been a punk band, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they went and worked in New York. They made their first album with Richard Goddard in New York city and, came out with this slick product and next thing you know they're they're got mansions yeah Yeah. and uh
1: and they just got inducted to the rock and roll
2: hall of fame yeah you know all good all good for belinda and jane and everybody that's one,
0: yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah. you know they to be honest you know they couldn't play that well you know gina shock the drummer was great and all that kathy valentine who late you know replaced uh um oh god named us margo gogo who was the bass player and and Kathy replaced her, and Kathy could certainly play. But mm. in general, you know, they weren't they weren't Jeff Beck, you know? Right, <laughs> right. And, and then again,
0: they didn't have uh, audiences of guys in, in uh, army jackets with no girlfriends, so. <laughs> no, but I
2: tell you what, we did a bunch of gigs because our drummer, Bill Bateman, for all through that Beauty and the Beat period, he was uh, Belinda Carlisle's boyfriend. Okay. And so we did a lot of gigs opening for the Go-Go's, You know, after after they, you know, after they became the Go Go's, sure. And man, I never seen so many polka dot dresses in my life. Yeah,
1: you had a bunch of polka dot dresses staring at you, and the pedal, the steel pedal, right? Uh, The pedal
0: steel, (laughs)
2: yeah, yeah. Trust me, there were no troubled loners, male (laughs) loners anyway. Go Go shows. Well,
0: Uh, try to try to keep them out in the parking lot anyway.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, once everybody started getting record deals and started learning, you know, how to make records, you know, cause it was, a, it was all a learning experience for, for all of us, you know, but everybody
0: was so young you
2: know. Yeah. Jeez. and we were cocky, you know, and cocksure, you know, right. and, 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 um, you know, so, you know, we had to learn the hard way in many respects, you know?
1: Right. Going back to fear for a second yeah. uh, in, in that movie, A Decline of Western Civilization, and going back to A&R people, uh, Lee Ving has that great line where he says, if you're an A&I person, an a person, go die. Yeah, <laughs> he's, got that, <laughs> he's got that great line in that yeah. movie.
2: Yeah. yeah. He's got that great Philly accent. thing,
1: uh, Right. It- and did you know, I saw someone sent me, God, this was maybe 10 years ago or so, Someone sent me uh, Lee Ving. Back in the late '70s, was on one of those like shows, like compared, like America's Got Talent, you know, like that. It was a '70s show, it was like Star Search. Remember Star Search? Oh yeah, yeah. Lee Ving was on there wearing a suit and tie, and he sang um, "Macarthur Park." Wow.
2: <laughs> well, he had a great. He he has. I mean, Lee's still with us. Uh, you know he he had a wide he had a big range. You know. His-
1: yeah, he did. He, I mean, he was amazing. And, and I think he ate up punk rock. Because to me, he was he had some country bands too, didn't
2: he? Well, he had one for a while. He was trying to pose as a country guy, and he had a he had a, <laughs> a band called Range War, which is right.
1: That was it. Yeah, Range War. Yeah. And what about? Did you ever uh, spend any time with El Duce? Oh yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's all you have to say about that is yeah. oh yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, well I guess we can leave that where, where that lies. Um, well so so Dave so you know you, you have this this uh, this rise of the blasters and and we were kind of talking off air you know we, we I just reread your uh, your chapter in the second John Doe book uh, more fun in in the new world which I think actually this month was uh, uh, came out in paperback. And uh, it's a it's a, a a masterwork where where John Doe gets uh, all of his friends to write his book for him. And,
2: exactly. <laughs> and,
0: and and you chipped in and and I, I love your chapter. It it, it perfectly encapsulates uh, you know the 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 arc of the blasters, um, but it's it's an iconic story of. Uh, you know uh, young kids uh, uh full of bluster and cocksure like you're saying you know and then as you get success the the uh the pressure's rise pressure's on you as a songwriter pressure to you know produce uh you know records that sell more and more copies and and it at some point it it at at the end of of your chapter you said well i was on stage and we played some great shows. We had a, you know, a record that was doing well. We had played some great shows, some transcendent shows, some bad shows. But at some point, it, it just wasn't fun anymore.
2: Well, um, you know, again, it, it, the Blasters were a band of guys that grew up together in Downey, California. You know, we were a hometown band.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, and so people talk about the Alvin Brothers fighting. Well, it wasn't just the Alvin Brothers. It was all five of us. Yeah. You know, uh, going at it. And uh, and that gets, you know, and when you're young, uh, when you're a young band, you know, like we did a tour op- very early in our career opening for Queen. and uh, and <laughs> Oh, God, we, really? <laughs> we could have 17,000 at some of these gigs, 17,000 Queen fans booing us and throwing beer bottles and <laughs> cherry bombs. But that made you into a – that either was going to break you up or make you strong, and it made us strong. Um, And it's just heightened our resolve of like, you know, hey, you know, and our attitude was, hey, the guys in Queen like us, so they're paying us to be here. You're paying to – be you, though, who are throwing things and boom, you're paying to be here while we're getting paid to be here, you know. Right. We're we're getting paid to play, you know, old rhythm and blues while you're – you're paying to listen to it, you know. So who's cooler? And sure. and and that molded us into a tight unit. But then, yeah, a few years later, you know, you go through all the um, all the various BS of record labels and and uh, booking agencies and blah 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 blah. And yeah, you know the you know when you're a young band and especially a hometown band, you fought all the time from the beginning. But it was always with giggles. You know, right, right, and love, and then it became, you know, fighting because you hated somebody, mm. you, know? you loved them, but you hated them right that minute. You hated them more than anything, and so it just wasn't fun, you know. Yeah, and um, and so yeah, I left, you know, which you know, there's times I regret leaving, you know, but overall, no, I don't regret it at all.
0: Sure. And and you know, you go on to have a tremendous solo career. You play in X. I actually saw you playing uh in X uh at on the Riverboat President here in New Orleans. Uh you know. And oh it's a, wow. It's a terrific show. Um Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh but wow. you know, yeah, you know, it was it was it was wild. Uh you know, so you have this great career. You know, we're we're kind of getting towards the end of of, of the podcast, but you know, I, I, we have a couple of connections that I haven't explored yet. You mentioned it uh, briefly that uh you know the iguanas and 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 dave alvin you know my band the iguanas um uh, I, i'm not sure how how rod hodges our guitar player first met uh uh chris gaffney um one of your uh, the, the great chris gaffney but I, I remember when when rod first approached you and realized that you were actually aware of us and and y'all you and rod became friends and you actually wound up uh you know uh co-writing the song uh Plastic Silver 9 Volt Heart. Yeah. One of our our most popular numbers and and but then we 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 uh, developed a close uh relationship with with Chris Gaffney as well and he sang all over our third record and a lot on our fourth record and and uh you know Chris was a, a tremendous songwriter and and singer. Um
2: uh, incredible singer.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so y- you and Chris grew up together, huh?
2: So uh, we f- it felt like we did.
0: Yeah.
2: We didn't meet until 19, uh, about 1982. Okay. His girlfriend at the time brought him to a blaster show and said, Hey, Chris, maybe these guys could use one or two of your songs. And he saw our show. And then he turned to his girlfriend and said, I think they got it covered. <laughs> 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 he came, he came backstage or she brought him backstage and we met Ben and, um, and, you know, had a nice chat. But then we got to be friends instantly in, in 1986. He was playing a a club called Raji's in, in Hollywood. Oh,
1: yeah. Sure.
2: And um, I went down there at a, you know, free night. So I went down there, and, and I i had heard of this guy. And he was playing, you know, everything from Ray Charles to Doug Somm to, uh, you know, Jerry Butler, you know. And I was just like right. – shouting out the requests, you know, and then he walked off the stage and walked right to me, and uh, and that was, you know, from then on. Yeah, it, But we'd grown up in the same area. Okay. And so because of that, we had all these mutual friends that we didn't know that we had. And uh, so then it was just like, oh, well, uh, hell, I've known you since high school, you know, even though we just met. Right. And, because yeah we really i mean we had mutual high school friends you know like
0: right he had grew he had the same same bunch of bunch of uh touch points uh, in common yeah.
2: you know and um and so chris and i yeah chris became is you know pretty quickly became my other brother you know wow. all the other blasters were my are my brothers you know and chris is my brother you know and um You know, we, uh, he, he was my old, you know, he's my bodyguard. He was my spiritual advisor, you know, uh, and vice versa. You know, we, we helped each other out in that way. You know, we'd fuck each other up, you know, Chris, you know, Chris would always adopt this, you know, European accent. And I would, you know, I'd be bumming about getting, I'd be nervous about getting, going up on stage. And I'd be like, are these people going to understand what I'm doing? Are they going to get it? You know, and Chris would just go calmly and coolly. He'd go, David. Just go there and do what you do.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> always calm me down. He's like, hey, here go, Chris, all right, man."
1: So, so now that things are opening up, you, you're playing again?
2: No, I probably won't be playing until uh, next year sometime. Oh, okay. No, I'm working on. Uh, I'm working on. Uh, I'm not supposed to be saying what I'm working on.
1: Okay, you're working on uh, a porno soundtrack, right?
2: Uh, well, <laughs>
1: we're
0: we're working on that together, Manny. But again, you're not supposed to talk about that. Don't spill um, the
2: beans, Mister Chevrolet. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Well, well. So, but but Dave, you did have a a, a terrific record that you put out uh, just at at the end of last year which was a, kind of a, a compilation of, of, of all these these recordings that you'd, that you'd done over the years uh, 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 from an old guitar.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
0: a beautiful record, man, and it has many of these people. Chris Gaffney's on it, uh, uh, you know, Amy Ferris, another uh, tremendous talent that, that, you know, is no longer with us.
2: Yeah, Bobby Lloyd-Dix, and now, sadly, the great drummer Don Heffington passed away, so two of my closest drummers you know Bobby Lloyd Hicks and Don Heffington are both gone and they're they're on the record and
0: Dale Spalding another uh, another uh, you know touch point between the iguanas and 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 you is uh, yeah
2: Dale Spalding from down in California yeah it was it's it's great Dale when I we cut a we cut a version of an Earl Hooker song called Earl's Rumba and I called it variations on Earl's Rumba right and it was Dale just happened to be in L.A. And he called me up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to the recording studio. <laughs> Care to join me? And he said, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was great to have a, a track with, uh, you know, to play a track with Gaffney and Dale Spaulding, you know. it was, so, was a lot, you know, some of my favorite recorded things are actually on this record, and they just didn't fit on other records of mine um, for one reason or another. And, and so it was, it was great to finally put them together and say, you know, this is you know, this is what I love to do for fun, you know. I mean, I like, I, I, I'm a good songwriter. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm egotistical about that. I, I can write a song, and yep. I'll stack some of the, my best against just about anybody else's. But, you know, what I love to do is make noise. I love to play music. Um, and so the, this record, the, From an Old Guitar, you know, along with my other records, but this one's particularly is, this is me, you know, I'd have a day off, and I'd go in the recording studio, and make music, you know. And one day it would be, you know, day or two of blue stuff. I'd go on another day and record a country rock number, or go and record something folky or some old twenties jazz. It was just whatever I felt like, you know. And I didn't have to worry about it fitting on a record. Oh, is this going to work on a record? All you right. know, that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I just, I love playing music and, and, you know, the record I put out right before that, it was a record called the third mind right. that I did with, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, it's a psychedelic, you know, live in the studio, no rehearsal, no arrangements, uh, record that I did with Victor Kramenacher and, uh, Michael Jerome from Richard Thompson's band and, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and David Emmergluck from, uh, uh john hyatt's used to be with john hyatt now he's with the counting crows and, and and a great singer named jesse sykes and yeah we just did something i always wanted to do and just go in with no rehearsals no arrangements we're all competent on our instruments and let's see what happens so yeah i like to play music i like to make noise and that's what i plan to continue doing you know
0: nice nice man yeah and i love that that uh the third bond recommends it's so
2: cool no thanks
0: Well, you know, I got to I got to mention one more thing, because I I like to make these connections. And, you know, we had Steve Berlin on on the show earlier this this year. Yeah. And and Steve tells the story, told the story on the podcast about working in the music store. And uh, I guess you had seen him playing with uh, Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs or, or, or somewhere. And. And you called him up at the record store and asked him if he could play Barry. And he lied and said, yes, he, he played Barry. And, and he said, it just happened to have a Barry right there in the, in the store that was like the perfect horn for me, the <laughs> perfect mouthpiece for me. And he said, I wound up using that for many years. He said, if it had been something else, it wouldn't have worked out as well. But he said, Steve said, that phone call changed my life.
2: <laughs> He's never told me that story. That's great money dad damn it
0: <laughs> yeah he said it changed the trajectory of my life and everything else opened up from that phone call so
2: yeah yeah no i'd seen him playing with fast Freddy and the precisions okay and, right right you know, and uh, yeah he you know steve produced my first solo album and yeah and steve was a member for a while of the blasters And i'll never forget when he left the blasters to join los lobos um because in the blasters he's playing baritone behind lee allen's tenor and he would get one solo a night, you know, and uh, and so I remember one of the guys in the band was really pissed that Steve was leaving, and I just said, "Really, you're you're mad at the guy joining a band where he's going to get to play five six solos a night, and you're <laughs> leaving a band where he leaves one on an instrument that's not his, you know?" Right, right. Then kind of, everything got oh yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It all it all worked out. Yeah. Well, man, uh, what what a fantastic guest you've been, Dave.
2: Um, uh, fun.
1: Yeah, listen, Dave. Uh, yes, sir. We got, we've got to get ready to. You know, we're getting towards the end of the show, but I always like to ask our guests a, a question, and 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 this is like, would you rather this or rather this? Yes. Sir. Okay. Okay. So, would you rather always eat standing up? Or have to get in your car from the passenger side. <laughs> you had to choose one or the other. Always get in the car from the passenger side. Or always eat standing up. What would it be? Yeah, you, you can only choose one.
2: Well, having done both, <laughs> it really depends on what kind of car and what am I eating. What? <laughs> I like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very
1: good. Now, to me, I, I could eat standing up no matter what. I've done it. You know, a lot of times, you know, uh, so I would probably choose always having to eat standing up Renee. What about you? Yeah,
0: I'm going to go eat standing up cause I'm kind of nervous. I like to pace anyway. So, uh. <laughs> that's fine with me you know when i go on the road i we we stop and get uh fast food i usually uh open the food up on top of the garbage can in the parking lot and and use that as my standing up table and i throw my stuff away into the garbage can as i get done uh,
2: yeah there's so many questions man who am i eating with who am i getting in the car with okay somebody in the driver's seat you know all those kind of is rise man you know
0: is there a stick shift is it are there bucket seats yeah it's a it's a lot of
1: well but, but what if it's a convertible
2: okay well i don't know well man then you got to get your hop on you know you got yeah. to hop o- you know you don't open the door you hop over the door but i'll say this i would rather spend the rest of my life eating standing up in the passenger seat that's what i would do okay <laughs> nice thank you dave you got it
0: well, uh, yes, uh, and, and again, like many guests, uh, you know, uh, we, we've hardly touched, scratched the surf, surface of the, the uh, Dave Alvin uh, saga. So there's plenty more to come. So we'd love to have you back sometime, Dave. I hope we haven't alienated you. I don't think we have. No, not at all. Nice. Well, so, uh, Manny, uh, uh, you want to wrap this up? Uh, what do we say in the troubled nation?
1: Uh, well, uh, trouble never ends. But the
0: struggle continues. <laughs>
3: Good night. How many times have I washed my face, combed my hair, and then left this place? I felt the shiver in my chest when I hit the door, the promise of something worth living for. I had a fight with the woman that had my kids, can't get along with anyone, and what if I did? I'm going back to the corner where we used to meet when our dreams were young and the night was. I'm going out tonight Going way downtown Where my friends who died Still hang around See what's shaking As the leaves turn brown Seasons has been and gone And another one's coming on And I'm on my way Down 30 years ago in the setting sun I was walking down Union Street and started to run Down into a cellar where the music screamed I guess it hit me hotter than I'd ever dreamed In the Palace Theater later on that night there was miracles in store but not a soul inside A phone ringing didn't seem so strange Anything could happen, everything could change I'd still hang around, see what shaking as the leaves turn brown The season's finish can smell the earth and the sky, again, yeah. and hear the rattle of the leaves, the locusts call, underneath the elms by the schoolyard wall, summer is over and the fields are tall and the season's been and gone, going out tonight, going way downtown. my friends who died still hang around, see what shaking his